Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And peak performance aging is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when faced with the challenges and opportunities, emphasis on opportunities here uh, that come in the second half of our lives. So that's how I think about it. Is it turns out most people hear somebody say something like, oh, we're going to optimize our biology and they think I'm biohacking. And it turns, it turns out that's really not what I'm talking about because most of the biggest interventions uh, are possible that are possible are, are essentially psychological or physiological interventions that have huge impacts on our neurobiology, right? Those are the big levers that that I'm I'm reaching for that we, we work with the Flow Research Collective. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra enhanced living. Hey folks, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and we are going into some really interesting stuff today. We have Stephen Kotler on the show. For those of you that don't know Stephen, he has authored about 14 books, The Rise of Superman, The Art of Impossible, and his recent book, Nar Country, Growing Old and Staying Rad, and that's what we're unpacking today on the show. Now, Stephen has been somebody that we've been looking to get on the show for quite some time. So it's, uh, yeah, it's great that he's on the show. I had to actually interview him at 4 a.m. to make it work. So I hope I am coherent and that you get a lot of value out of this episode. So for those of you that don't know Stephen's work, he has really modernized the concept of flow, the flow state. And we talk about this concept in depth. We talk about performance beyond our 40s and into our 50s and beyond and the myths associated with getting older. You know, we do live in an age of medicine and science, and fortunately, the marrying of Eastern medicine and philosophy with the Western benefits. And there is so much information out there that, you know, will help us with our longevity. But with that, there's a lot of confusion in myths, and we are trying to get the record straight with Stephen because like everything he does, he has done the research. There's a lot of depth in his work and there's a lot of depth in this conversation. We talk about why it's so important if you are going to look to achieve higher performance as you age to start young. And I suppose that's common sense. We look at societies in the so-called blue zones, you know, societies like in Okinawa, Japan, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist in Southern California, and we talk about them and what enables those societies to live so much longer. You know, we look to figures like Tom Brady and we think they're anomalies. And the conversation I'm having with Stephen is that it's not, and it's available to all of us if we are willing to do the work, have the right structures, the right disciplines, the right habits, and be curious about what performance can look like beyond our 50s. Anyways, folks, I really hope that you do enjoy the show. Rate this podcast, leave us a review. You know, your reviews really help us. It helps us scale the message. It also allows me to know what I should be focusing on and what you, the community, want to hear about. If you haven't already, go to the website at www.ultrahabits.co, sign up for the newsletters, check out the blogs, and just find out what we're up to 
Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Stephen. Peace out. I'm out of here. Have a great week. Welcome to Ultra Habits, man. We are at 4 a.m. down here in Australia in the land down under. And uh, where are you joining us from to today? Uh, Northern Nevada, the near Lake Tahoe. Okay, is that where you is that where you're at these days, or are you just there, kind of on a, a bit of a holiday? No, this is where I live. Excellent, excellent. So, Stephen, look, Ultra Habits. Um, we're a community that has really always been focusing on what we call the executive athlete people that move and groove in their career in a way that's very similar to how athletes are orientated, very interested in mind, body, spirit complex. I've loved your your books, particularly those uh, you know on flow, the rise of Superman, all of them, and I think there's about fourteen of them in total. Today, I want to talk to you about Nar Country. What drove you to to write this book? So, Nar Country is a book about peak performance aging, and uh, the first thing is, is is sort of the obvious thing. I've spent my career. Uh, working on Flow. I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what Flow is, uh, it's technically an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best, we perform our best. That's not particularly useful. So more specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption where you get so focused on the task at hand, everything else just starts to melt away and disappear. And all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So Flow Science uh goes right through the science of adult development. Like very, very simply put, um, one of the keys to like really successful aging, really healthy aging is maximizing flow in the second half of our lives. And for a bunch of different reasons, um, while our desire to get into flow doesn't, doesn't drop off, there's something known as the flow continuity hypothesis, which basically says, yes, we love flow from, you know, the beginning of our life to the end of our life. That doesn't really change. Um, but our ability to get into flow, uh, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, can decline over time. Uh, so, uh, the, the work on flow runs, runs sort of straight through peak performance aging. And, you know, uh, one of the things that, that really matters, uh, over time is, is ability to access flow. So one, you know, there was this huge part of this that was just sort of in my field. And, and the second part was you take the flow science and the new discoveries in flow science and you add it to some new discoveries we've got in embodied cognition and network neuroscience and a couple other whiz bang fields. It was starting to look like, you know, one, the old idea about aging, which is that all our mental and physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop that slide. That was very clearly not true. What we now know and is that all those skills do decline over time, but they're all used to lose skills. It's all like the flow was a classic example. We never stop training these skills. We hang on to them, even advance them far later in life than ever anybody thought possible. One level uh, beyond that, and I'll shut up. Uh, you can ask your next question. Uh, but one level beyond that, that we've all heard the old saw, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? And it turns out what all the evidence was saying in the lab, in a sense, was, hey, wait a minute, that's not true at all. In fact, you know, old dogs are better at certain kinds of learning than, than young dogs. And, 
you know, if you really apply what we know about flow science and, and embodied cognition, these other things, it should be possible later in life to onboard even very, very difficult physical skills that are supposed to be biologically impossible. And that is sort of what I set out to test in our country. Um, was, was I ran a, you know, kind of a radical experiment in peak performance aging around all of these ideas. Uh, and that was at the heart of that book, but it really sort of emerged out of flow science. It emerged out of conversations I was having with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi before he passed away, the godfather of flow psychology, um, and things like that, um, about these topics. Yeah. I was actually wondering, I was going to ask you about the interplay between flow and uh, peak performance aging. So I think you answered that really well. I, I'm going to throw out a, a statement, which is my observation. I'm just wondering what your comment would be to this statement. It's my observation that kind of for all the miracles of Western science and medicine and, you know, all the advances in our society, in many ways, we are maybe aging, aging more gracefully than maybe our ancestors would have. But it also appears that in some indigenous countries or countries or societies where we are looking at people that are living a much simpler form of lifestyle or more associated to the way that we maybe were living thousands of years ago, that they seem to have it right. Although I do acknowledge that they didn't live as long. What's your view on how modern ways and modern science and, and medicine has helped us but also how modern ways of living have actually resulted in our decline. And, and would you even agree that that's a thing? I don't know how you're measuring our decline for, so the, the, the meta hypothesis uh, there, I don't know how to comment on, but let me talk about the stuff you said and maybe we'll find our way to some kind of an answer that's mm. satisfactory. Um, certainly we become more state over time. We get less exercise. Um, and, uh, we may, we, especially with modern technology, uh, we, uh, have sort of deprioritized interpersonal social connection. Um, and, uh, there's, I could, I could actually go on. There's a lot of bad stuff that spins off of phones and screens, Right. There's a lot of negative stuff that spins off of phones and screens. There's a lot of negative stuff that spins off of I don't, not getting enough exercise. Um, and, you know, is our diet better? Our diets, what's available to us is far better than ever before. Do we take advantage of it or are we filling ourselves with crap? Open, open questions. Um, and that seems to be the, the case across the board. So I think what you could say at a blanket statement level is, I mean, we are, we are certainly living a lot longer than our ancestors, and um, a lot of us are going to end up living a lot longer than we expected to. That's really clear. Um, part of the reason I wrote this book is I've spent 20 years looking at regenerative medicine and longevity science. And um, 20, 25 years ago, it was an absolute joke. It was nonsense. It was it, it was it was um, you, you were just being lied to. Uh, about the miracle properties of testosterone, <laughs> basically, is, is, is really, I mean, it has some, some, some benefits. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but they're, they're not what people think they are. And then it works a, a lot more differently than, than most people know. But we, it's getting, it's gotten much more mature. This is not what in our country is about, right? In our country is about the 50 years of research about what we absolutely know about peak performance agent, things you can bet the house on. 
longevity science, regenerative medicine, you hear a lot about that. There's tons of podcasts. Everybody wants to talk about it, biohacking, this and that. And it's super cool. And I really like it. But we are at the front end of that revolution. And historically, going back 25 years into longevity and medicine, regenerative medicine, we get it wrong much more than we get it right. And so I, Narcotry is about the stuff we know that works. And where we're going in longevity medicine, longevity science and regenerative medicine, we're going to get older. I mean, biotechnology alone is advancing so quickly that we gain five hours of life expectancy every day we manage to stay alive. So it's really moving. Um, and, uh, so, you know, a high quality second half of our life, whatever the hell that means, right? Wherever, wherever you are at on that, on that scale, um, we've got some really good understandings of what it takes. Is it more related to primitive lifestyles versus modern lifestyles? It sort of depends where you were, you know, way back in the day or where you are today and how you're living. But I think the one thing that is really worth hitting on is you go into the blue zones, the longest lived mm -hmm. communities on earth, right? And there's some controversy around the blue zone research, but it's important to point out where that controversy is. The controversy in the blue zone research is not about the big lifestyle decisions, exercise, uh, social connection, those sorts of things. It's around little dietary things. Um, you know, that's where the arguments are. And those are basically the same arguments that are going on in longevity science and regenerative medicine, which is why I say, you know, we know what the big levers are. The things that most people are focusing on are the smaller levers and, you know, lots of arguments still. Um, I'm not saying don't do those things, but I'm saying if those are the primary things you're, you're, you're doing, that's probably not the best strategy. I'm going to stop there. I went all over the place with that answer. No, no, no. no. That, that was, was, a, that was a good answer. No, it was. And you know what? We were going to touch on the blue zones. I think what what's clear is, you know, with abundance comes an abundance of choices. And a lot of those choices are potentially bad ones, right? And it all comes down to our level of uh, discipline and, and I guess how we're interfacing with the world, right? We have more choice today. And with more choice comes the more opportunity to make ones that are suboptimal let's let's dive into peak performance aging how do you define that and what yeah are... let's i mean so like let's start at the beginning well, how do you define peak performance and then let's move into peak performance yeah. aging and, and to me the definitions are very related i've always defined peak performance and this is by the way this is not my definition i have upgraded the language a little bit but it's a definition that goes back william james is really who i'm mm. quoting the godfather mm. of psychology um but Performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And peak performance aging is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when faced with the challenges and opportunities, emphasis on opportunities here uh, that come in the second half of our lives. Uh, so that's how I think about it. Um, and is it turns out most people hear somebody say something like, oh, we're going to optimize our biology and they think I'm biohacking. And it turns out, turns out that's really not what I'm talking about because most of the biggest interventions uh, are possible that are possible are, are essentially psychological or physiological interventions um, that have huge impacts on our neurobiology, right? Those are the big levers that, that I'm, I'm reaching for that we, we work with the flow research collective. So are you talking about mindset? I'm talking about 
the relationship between mindset is a big part of it, but I'm talking about really the relationship between the mind and the body. And it goes so much farther than mindset. So let me give you a couple examples. I said flow matters to peak performance aging. So let me use this as my example. Why does flow matter so much to peak performance aging? A couple of reasons. One, there are nine known causes of aging. All of them, what they all have in common is inflammation, stress and inflammation. So anything that fights stress, is an anti-aging technology tool. Flow, as we move into flow, there's a global release of nitric oxide. It's a gaseous signaling molecule. It, it's in every cell in the body. Uh, if you've gone to the gym and you've worked out for 20, 25 minutes, your lungs open up, it gets quiet upstairs, that's nitric oxide. What it does is it dilates our lungs It uh, and it lowers stress hormones, mostly flushes them out of our system. So in flow, you're essentially resetting the nervous system back to zero. This is hugely important, right? This is because of the connection between stress and aging. That's just one example. Another example is, and this is maybe a little sexier, this is neuroimmunology. Powerful positive emotions. And it's interesting, the two, two of the most powerful positive emotions that we get to experience is a sense of mastery and a sense of control. And well-known fact in, 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 in aging, uh, Older adults with regular access to a sense of mastery and control live much better and longer than, than other people. Flow has six core psychological characteristics, phenomenological characteristics, ways the state makes us feel. Two of them are it increases our sense of mastery because flow, we're always pushes on our skills. We're using our skills to the utmost. And so we're, we're learning, right? We're more adaptive and more complex on the other side of a flow state. Um, and we talk about flow as optimal performance or peak performance because all humans are hardwired for getting into flow and flow is how we do peak performance, but that's not the experience on the inside, right? I, I watch, uh, LeBron James in a flow state. And I, I, from the outside, I'm saying, oh, that looks like peak performance. On the inside, LeBron just feels like he can control mm -hmm. things you can't normally control. Mm -hmm. So you get this sense of control, right? This could be me as a writer. It's Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. And my words are doing magical things that, Words don't normally do it, you know, 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. When we get access to these two really powerful positive emotions, it increases the production of T cells and natural killer cells. T cells are fight disease. Natural killer cells fight tumors and other sick cells, another one of the major causes of aging. So this is the kind of very tight mind-body connection that we're seeing. You mentioned mindset, and I'd be derelict if I didn't close this all off without telling you what we know about mindset and, and peak performance aging because it's wild. And this is extremely well established. There's like 50 years of data that shows this, that a positive mindset towards aging, which is I'm really excited. I think my best days are ahead of me. I, I, I think the second half of my life is filled with, you know, exciting possibility results in an extra seven and a half to eight years of health and longevity. It's really well established. So is the inverse. So, Neg being exposed to negative stereotypes around aging, having a bad mindset around aging, being exposed to negative stereotypes around aging, and by a bad mindset about aging. By the way, I always point out that old is much more, it's a mental event. It's not a physical thing. And old, the minute your voice in your head starts saying you're too old for this shit, right? Those kinds of thought patterns, you've caught old. Literally, there's changes in your physiology, there's changes in your neurobiology, and the bad news is 
those of us who catch old, those of us who are exposed to negative stereotypes around aging and we believe them, by the time we get to 60, when they measure memory, somebody who has never been exposed to negative stereotypes around aging and is a healthy mindset versus other the other side of that coin, 30% greater decrease in memory in people who've been uh, exposed to negative mindsets around aging or have a negative mindset around aging, been opposed to negative stereotypes around aging. That's wild. That's up. Uh, by the way, for anybody who's curious, not my research, Becca Levy, she's at Yale, um, probably the world's leading expert on stereotypes and ageism, uh, which is also interesting because ageism as a final thought is the most socially acceptable stereotype in the world, right? Like in today's, in, in the modern world, if I like, if I walk outside my front door with any kind of prejudice on display, I'm going to get canceled by the time I get to my mailbox, right? But RJ, I can look at you and be like, dude, you're just too old for this shit. And people mm. laugh. It's funny. We don't even think about it. And yet the research shows that like me landing on you with that can impact your memory by the time you're 60 years old, not actually old by the time you're 60. That's remarkably young in today's culture. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reading about a study a week ago where a control group had words uh, kind of subconsciously suggested to them that were associated with being old and they started to walk like they were old. Yeah. That, after, there's, right? so there's like, a ton. Yeah. There's a ton of those studies. Like, yeah, yeah. They're not, they, 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 they grew out of in the beginning, they were doing studies on uh, empathy. They were, they were empathies, empathy studies, right? Where they, uh, they were priming people and seeing how they, you know, treated somebody who needed help. Right. And they I should point out, so there's all this stuff going back to the 70s that that argue that a large portion of what we call aging is actually a result of language priming. And so mm -hmm. Ellen Langer is sort of the, the queen of this, and she wanted to know how much does language priming contribute to, to, to aging. She was at Harvard, and she ran a study. We call it the counterclockwise study. The study I ran in our country may be the most radical study anybody's ever run in peak performance aging. This is the second most radical. And it was she wanted to know really if uh, if you prime people for health and vitality in youth, right, if it would have any impact on health and vitality in youth. So uh, they took she took 16 basically 80 year old men and the, she started at Harvard and she found a monastery in, in New Hampshire, a couple hours away. So she drove these guys out to this monastery and they had tricked out the monastery. This was in 1981 and it looked like 1961. So they had all the magazines and books from 61 and they were showing, they would have movie night and they would show films from 61 and the, and the people were divided into two, two groups, group one, just reminisce about 1961. Talk about what life was like 20 years ago. The second group, pretend it's 1961. Pretend you're 20 years younger and talk about current events, et cetera, et cetera. They measured every biomarker, psychological marker, occasion of age, including they taking photographs of participants um, right before and after. And on, on the back end, every single thing you you could possibly imagine their health improved, their gates improved, uh, arthritis decreased so much that they got taller and their fingers got longer, eyesight improved, hearing improved, IQ improved. And like the list is on and on. And this was after like five days play acting. And people, so many people said bullshit that this study has been redone now three or four times. They made three TV shows out of it in Europe where they ran the study and just filmed it as a TV show because they just couldn't believe it. 
but this is um one of the most stunning impacts because this is very acute mm. this is literally like you're gonna play act for five days and your vision is gonna get better your hearing is gonna get better your fingers are gonna get longer come on right that's that sounds like crazy talk except Again and again and again and again and again, it shows up in, in, in research. And her research, what I like about it is it's not, she learned things in the lab, but she took them into the wild. She ran, a lot of people have problems with their studies because they're like, okay, there's too many confounds and this and that and this and that. And I, maybe you, there's something that to be said about that, but it's also, she's running this stuff in the wild with real people. And it's, you know, it gets closer to the kind of results you're actually interested in also. So yes, there are confounds, but I, th I think it's really worth paying attention to nonetheless, maybe more, more than some of the other stuff. I mean, in, in Western society, we have, you know, we have retirement, you know, there's a lot to be said on what happens to people once they retire. And I've seen people deteriorate, particularly people that have been very active after retirement. Yeah, Daniel Levitin, who wrote a really great book, he's a neuroscientist, wrote a really great book called Successful Aging that recently came out. It's, uh, we've basically, I, I ran some weirder studies than he did, but I think we both read the same 5,000 papers, right, mm. to sort of come to our conclusions because our conclusions are very, very similar. But one of the things he said in, in his book is, um, peak performance aging in a single sentence, don't retire. I have a different mm. sentence, but, but like, What's your literally sentence? he's like, don't retire. It's like, it's, it's really, that one, that one's really simple. I think my, my, my sentence explains a little bit more about why you shouldn't retire, but like, really, uh, you can get a lot there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, I don't know what your view is. I grew up, you know, in, in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, but we were immigrant family and at the head of our family, we had, an older kind of matriarch who, you know, the elderly were very visible and very active in our lives. And when I look at traditional Caucasian society, particularly in the West, like as people age, they kind of get locked away. So this is the thing. You just actually landed on the one. Remember our that second question where I was like, I'm going to be all over the place with this freaking answer. And do I think they did it better back then than they do now? This is where, this is the one caveat where I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I think we did it better back then or in certain other, uh, cultures. Um, and certainly respect. So we know this societies, all the blue zones, first of all, there's tremendous respect for the elders, right? Um, and all the blue zones. And this is really important for both young and old cross speed, cross generational friendships. Usually, usually, usually important. In fact, if you want to talk about peak performance aging, one of the more radical and important suggestions that you have to make to people, and we've said this numbers of different ways over the past 50 years because it's, it's offensive to some people, but the, the flat out the way I like best is make replacement friends. Most people make friends in their age group. And so powerful, robust social connection matters so much for successful aging it matters so much for peak performance across the board. You actually cannot perform at your best at any age without maintaining robust social connections. It becomes much more important later in life for quality of, of life reasons, but it's really important at, at all times. The best way, by the way, to maintain those social connections is probably to drop into group flow with people. So group flow, again, here we are back at, at, at flow for a bunch of different reasons, but 
the social connection matters so much. And these cross-generational friendships really matter because if you don't make replacement friends, I've got two examples in my life. I've got, so this is, I have a friend. He's in his nineties. He is one of, he was one of the brightest people alive in the 20th century, considered one of the great minds of the 20th century. Every single friend he had from the 20th century is dead. He's the last one left. And what's weird is he comes out of a particular, like there's, there were a group of thinkers that came up in the sixties and seventies that thought unlike anybody else in his, and he was part of that group. So literally like anybody who thought like him, they're gone. One of the reasons I'm friends with him is because I sort of, I know about the, these group of thinkers from the sixties and seventies. I'm fascinated by, by uh, their ideas because they're sort of so, so neat and unusual, but it's really strange. I t- I'll call him up and it'll be like, Oh my God, it's so good to hear your voice, Stephen. I haven't talked to anybody in a month. And he's not actually kidding. Right. We do some hospice work with dogs. We work, we run a hospice care sanctuary mm-hmm. with dogs. We also sometimes take our old dogs to meet older humans. We did this yesterday. My wife and I did this yesterday. We were doing like a hospice call with dogs. And, you know, my wife and I go into these situations and, um, you know, with awareness that there's a good chance the person we're sitting across from were the only people they talk to all week, which is wild, right? Really, really wild. Robust social connection matters so much for healthy aging. And you start seeing this, the guy we were with was 72, not considerably old by contemporary skin. Mm -hmm. So, um, replacement friends really matters. And I do think traditional cultures get it wrong. And I do think contemporary Western cultures, um, I don't know if it's Caucasian or not Caucasian, um, as much as Western, we tend to lock away the aged and we undervalue wisdom and overvalue youth in really like wild ass proportions. And we make, you know, the point I make, one of the points I make in our country is like, if you actually understood what older adults bring to the table, well-trained older adults bring to the table, hiring younger workers versus older workers is a disaster in the modern world. Like the skills we want in the 21st century are skills that come built into well-trained over 50 year olds. And yet we're not hiring. We have this youth culture movement at work and um it's the exact opposite of of, of what we're looking for uh in terms of employees which is wild mm. it, it seems to be trending i mean i've done a couple of talks here in australia recently uh behind uh, the whole piece on intergenerational learning it seems to be taking some form in corporate land but probably not not quick enough i, I want to ask you something i want to ask you if this is a revolutionary statement or question, do you, do you think that aging in the sense that we have come to learn or view it is a social co- construct? Like how much of it is reality versus kind of what we're, what we learn? Like, you know what That's I mean? A like, real, so yeah. So truth. I don't know. That's an awesome question. That's an awesome question. That's a, that's a truly awesome question. I don't know how you exactly study it because, for example, we know Ellen Langer's work, what we were just talking about, aging is partially a result of language priming, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know that for sure. We know uh, that aging is also partially as a result of mindset. Um, and we know that, you know, there are certain things that 
you know, decline over time. The way I always think about it is, and maybe this is the better answer to your question, aging is a fact of life. Old is a mindset. Mm. So old is a byproduct, is certainly a product of learning. And this was, you know, one of the weird things that happened sort of in the beginning in our country when I was writing this is um, I would notice these things because if you spend a lot of time in action sports communities, it's mm-hmm. not unusual to, to see like, 80 year old skiers mm. or surfers or snowboarders or, and like ass kicking, ass kicking men and women. Um, that's not all that unusual in those communities. Um, whereas, uh, you know, sort of, you don't, if you go to the gym, you don't usually see 75 year olds playing pickup hoops. Um, you may occasionally, but not all the time. Whereas you go to the ski mountain and like 30% of the people on the mountain are over 60 and they're, a lot of them are killing it. Like, you know what I mean? Um, and so these are cultural differences where like one call, one culture says, okay, this is an acceptable culture for older athletes. You know what I mean? And the only difference is some of these action sports are considered lifestyle sports, not sports, right? And there's no, but there's no difference. In fact, from a, a an athletic standpoint, uh, there's studies coming out of Japan that show that, well, first of all, we know action sports are phenomenal for longevity for a bunch of different reasons. But there's research out of Japan that says skiing is the single best activity um, over a lifespan because of how it loads the bones and preserves bone density around and trains strength, stamina, flexibility, balance, and agility, which are the five physical skills we have to continue to train over time um, uh, or uh, or we start to have problems, right? Like those are the use it and lose it skills. And the, and the World Health Organization, they, we, I mean, we have exact numbers. You want peak performance aging, it's 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity every week plus two strength training days and three balance agility and flexibility training days. And, um, or you pick activities like action sports that do all of those at once or non-action sports, tennis, give you a funny story, a funny study run out of the Mayo Clinic on this one. They want to compare like running, swimming, joining a health club to like other sports. And some of this is that some of these sports are more social but most of it is that they're dynamic. They need all strength, stamina, right? all these all these skills at once. But you join a health club, you're going to live about an extra year and a half. You start running, it's about and stay stick to it for the rest of your life. It's about three three and a half years. Swimming is three point four years. I think running is three point one, and swimming is three point four. Soccer is about five and a half years. Badminton is six years. Tennis wow. is nine, and then skiing. Snowboard action sports seem to be though. There's, we need more data on this one. Seems to be about 10. But uh, if you go from in America, the longest lived communities in America are Summit, Pitkin, and Eagle County. They're all in Colorado. They're like meccas of action sports. And on average, uh, it's Summit, which is the longest lived community in America. They live on average 10 years longer than, than the rest of the country. And it's an action sports base. So it's not exactly, it's sort of anic data. It's more data than anect, but like, we're not a hundred percent on that. It's not like the Mayo Clinic study where they literally spent 25 years comparing activity against activity. But, um, the social activities matter. The dynamic activities matter. I don't know how I started down this, down this road. Um, that's another reason I think, you know, flow matters over time because a lot of the 
athletic activities that produce so much flow also fit into these categories. And when you're in flow, right, there's a lot of painkillers uh, that show up naturally. So you're going to perform longer, right? I know like when I go skiing, I tend to, to flow shows up, tends to show up in the afternoon for me. Um, and I know if I drop into flow, I'm going to ski an extra hour. And usually that extra hour is the difference between like, like a good workout day and a great workout day where like, you know, I'm peeling myself off the carpet afterwards because mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've sort of mm-hmm. worn myself all the, all the way out kind of thing. Um, so there's, there's downstream stuff there as well. In terms of that, let's, let's unpack that. So one of the things that you talked about that I really loved, and I had this conversation with Rich Divini, who I know, you know, uh, a few weeks back and we talked about, you know, I call it crucibles. He was talking about the development of attributes and something you talked about in your book or wrote about was creating a quest. Like, I think that's like important, irrespective of anything, but how does that interplay with aging and why is that so important? So one, let's go back to, let's start with mindset, right? Yeah. If I always say, if you're going to peak performance aging, the place to start is with mindset. How do you fix a mindset? Right. There are, uh, like four things I think that are worth doing Two Ellen Langer suggestions, credit where credit is due. These are not unusual. We've heard these before. One, uh, watch your language. Watch how you talk to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Listen to the voice in your head. You want language and thoughts that open you up and you want to avoid stuff that makes you constrict and feel tighter, right? That's a quick shorthand for that. Two, um, mindfulness in general. Keep your attention pres- uh, focused on the, on the present moment and paying attention to what's going on. But for peak performance aging, this is interesting. Ellen Langer suggests noticing because we tend to, we live under the illusion of stasis, right? That the one truism in life is everything has changed, but the brain sort of hides that. You know, you feel like you're the same person you were when you were 30 or 20 or, and you're not, you're wildly different, but you don't know that because the brain, the brain hides that from us for a lot of days. self. We maintain what's known as this continuity of self. It's not true, but we, we have this illusion. So you can fight back by actually noticing that moment by moment, by moment, it actually changes that is the most constant thing in our lives. That makes us less fearful about the change that we see as we age. The third thing you can do is uh, divorce your phone. Phones create, we, the average Westerner spends four to six hours a day on their phone. Phones create what, what we call is a mobile mindset. They turn us into narcissists with this huge cushion of safety and security around us. We have this like fake sense of safety and security that the phone provides and we get very, very narcissistic on top of which there's a bunch of stuff in the brain that declines over time. We can train it up, but phones make it worse, like task switching, right? Our ability to, to when we switch tasks to stay focused on, on whatever phones destroy focus, they destroy our ability to task switch all these things that are kind of declining over time anyways. And we want to fight back against it. phones make worse. So divorcing your phone is usually important here in the Final thing, the last thing is do those first three things. But if you really want to explode your mindset towards aging, get a quest, get a mission, get a, my mission was, could I teach myself how to park ski in my fifties, right? Now park skiing, if you you don't ski, it's the discipline of skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps and on wall rides and boxes and rails. 
for about 12 different biological reasons, is considered very difficult to learn if you're over 35. And by the time you get to 45, 50, it's downright impossible. That was the theory. Theory turns out not to hold up very well. Um, I used a whole bunch of new new ideas. These new ideas we were talking about at the start of the podcast. Uh, taught myself how to park ski. Uh, we then ran the experiment with a bunch of other older adults. You can go to narcountry.com and watch the video. We f- were followed around by a National Geographic cameraman uh, during this. Uh, so you can you can see. But it, the same protocol worked for a lot of other people. It's not just me. It's, you know, it worked mm-hmm. across the boards for you know big research group. My point on this is when you create this kind of like NAR style quest, this challenging quest, um, when I was learning how to park ski, like it didn't matter what my mindset was towards aging. It was, it got, when I started learning how to do 360s and 180s and nose butters and blah, 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 all these tricks with crazy names and slide boxes and rails, whatever I thought might be possible in the second half of my life, it went out the door replaced by holy shit i have no idea what's possible because nobody thought any this was going to be possible right every everybody i talked to said oh my god you're going to put yourself in the hospital you're going to put other people not this will never ever work and it worked astoundingly well incredibly 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 well so that is the i think the first version of a quest the second thing about a quest is it's we hear a lot about living with passion and purpose and flow and, and, and how important those things are to adult development and overall quality of life and well-being. But creating a high flow, like this is a way to put it into action. And one of the other, one of the final things, and I'll shut up about this, is that it, we know this. Older adults who have long quests, right, long, basically like hot high hard goals, goals that take multiple years to accomplish, do so much better. This isn't this is one of the problems with retirement, right? You lose those like sort of long-term goals, these missions. So especially if you're planning on like working less. And I think this is at any point in your life, right? If you're if you're planning on on like like you need a mission so that everything that needs to stay active stays active in the brain. Yeah. And, and Stephen, to your earlier point, I think that's why sports with uh, these kind of communities, action sports, endurance sports with real strong communities and with a lifestyle help individuals kind of continue on that trajectory. Case in point, I, I, I got a, a friend out in Colorado. His name's Travis Macy. And his dad was part of like the original ultra running crew. I'm an ultra runner. And so like the Western States crew in Leadville, and he's mm-hmm. got like Alzheimer's and dementia, but he's still out there running, man. Like it's insane. Wow. Like he's, yeah, he's out there running on the trails up there in Colorado. Like as you know, they're always worried, will he get lost? So, will he not? But he's just having a go. I met a guy. So I, I, I met a guy who's part of a posse in the East coast. They're East, they're marathoners all in their seventies, but he's got a friend who's <laughs> seventy six, I want to say maybe 78, who he runs with, who juggles while he runs marathons, right? He runs marathons and juggles the whole goddamn yeah. time. Um, talk about like hitting everything you need to hit for peak performance aging. Mm-hmm. It's kind that's one of, that's been sort of the most fun of sort of doing this work is getting to me because like, Older ass kickers have just like crawling out of the woodwork. Like there's, there's a million of them in every community, but until you go looking for them, you don't, you, you know, they're, they're doing their thing, right? They're not often advertising. And, but when you go looking, you're just like, they're 
everywhere. And yeah. um, that's another thing around mindset. I, you know, going looking for the evidence that you're that like what you think is, is possible for you in the second half of your life is wrong. You know what I mean? Like paying attention to that evidence because it is everywhere, as you sort of pointed out. I think with older athletes as well, they're not like social media focused, right? Like they didn't come up in the social media age. I remember I asked. Well, them. yeah, it's it's funny. Laird Hamilton yeah. and I agree with agree with this. You know, Laird, uh, people always be like, "How come I don't?" There's not more photos of me skiing or video of me skiing. And Laird, you know, people are always like, "How come there's no video of of you surfing?" And, and Laird's point and my point is the same, which is like, if I'm shooting video, I'm not surfing. If I'm shooting video, I'm not skiing. Right? Like. Uh, my point is to go do the thing, right? Yeah. Like my point is not to show you that I did the thing. That's, that's a different, that's a different game. What's the concept of stacking motivators? Cause I think that, that was a real brilliant uh, concept. Yeah. I want to share that with our audience. So this is a peak performance idea, uh, in general works really well in terms of peak performance aging. Um, the idea here is peak performers, elite performers. If you think about athletes, they never rely on a single fuel, right? Like you would never go into a race saying, well, I slept well the night before, but I didn't get any fats or proteins or carbohydrates and I didn't hydrate, right? No, you hydrate, you balance your diet, you get, you want as many access and you sleep well, you want all the physical fuel, the fuels for physical performance. Well, elite performers do the same thing with psychological fuels, motivation. So there are five major intrinsic internal drivers in humans there are way more but there are five huge ones and they're curiosity passion purpose autonomy and mastery turns out all of them actually do double duty as flow triggers so if you actually get these things going in your life you're going to spend a ton more time in flow bonus really important um but it uh peak there's a lot to do with peak performance aging right there's a lot to do and you sort of gotta, I think that my, the mindset fight in the second half of our life until culture itself really starts to change. It's a constant fight, right? I think it's a constant fight. Uh, and you, there's a, it, a lot of stuff that starts happening, you know, can get really demotivating. So you want as you want all of your intrinsic motivators lined up and pointed in the same direction. This is the other thing that peak performers know. So biologically, curiosity is designed by evolution to be built into passion. Passion is designed to be coupled to something outside of ourselves that gives you purpose. Once a system, an organism has purpose, what does it need next? It wants autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. And once it has autonomy, it wants mastery, the skills to pursue it well. These are the big five intrinsic motivators. And as you can see, they're pointed, they come online in a particular order, and they all stack up. So what I say is, if you're going to end up with, with a NAR style quest, like my quest to learn to ski or anything else, make sure that that quest is designed in such a way that like you're stacking intrinsic motivators because it's hard. It's hard to stick with anything over time. And especially these kinds of really challenging quests, the upside from it is, is amazing, right? It's, it's phenomenal what it's going to bring to your life, but you really want to make sure you're, you're staying on that path and, and stacking intrinsic motivators is one of the best ways to do this. Excellent. So Steve, we're going to start to land this plane, but always a couple questions before we go. 
particularly around habit orientation. So say mm -hmm. you've got a younger person that is starting mm -hmm. to age. I'm doing the quote on quotes because of the conversation we're having, but they're starting to get older uh, biologically. Uh, what are, or, or they're already older biologically. Like what are some of the kind of basic habits that you've seen that people that have been a very good example of what we're talking about in terms of peak performance aging. Yeah, I mean, so the, fir the first one, the place you got to start um, is you got to just get good at flow, right? And you want to lay these habits in, in, in younger. Um, you know, at the, at the Flow Research Collective, the, just to put, we run up, we have a basic flow training. It's called Zero to Dangerous. In fact, we actually put people through Zero to Dangerous before we put people through Enter the NAR, which is our peak performance aging training because it's so foundational. Um, just so people understand this, uh, we have an eight week training. We're data geeks. We measure everything we can pre and post, which is why I can tell you. And we train people in 130 countries and tens of thousands of people every month. So we have like globally accurate, wildly diverse, you know, what works and what doesn't. My point here is that on the back end of an eight week training, and it's a hard training. You have a coach, you have a, you know, and you go through it with a PhD psychologist as your coach. And there's a lot of work. It's not easy, but we see a 70, 80% boost in flow. So my big point here is, this is totally trainable, right? If anybody's curious and wants more information, go to getmoreflow.com and you can just sign up for an interview and learn more about what we're doing. Um, or, uh, but besides the point, lay in those flow habits, right? Figure out flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. It's not a binary. There's a cycle. It's a four stage process. Understand the map of the process and understand where you are, which triggers you need to kind of get you where you want to go from each point of the cycle, those sorts of things that information is available free. It's in my books. You can go to stephencotler.com or flowresearchcollective.com. There's videos out the wazoo. They're all free that kind of break that down. Or you can take the class if you want more information. But that's like where you want to start because this stuff is going to get harder over time if you don't, right? Uh, high flow lifestyles are, are, are tricky. The other, the other couple of things that really matter early on. So I know we're going to land this plane. Let me do this quickly. I'm going to do this really fast, but it's important. So we know in our fifties, there's changes in the brain that unlock whole new levels of intelligence, creativity, empathy, and wisdom. These are so-called superpowers of cognitive superpowers of aging. We didn't, this is new information, right? We didn't, this was like contrary to the long, slow rot theory. No, it actually turns out shit happens in the brain in our fifties. That's amazing. And we get a hell of a lot smarter and more creative and more empathetic and wiser. And all this is astounding, but so there's these caveats in adult development. Psychologists call them modifiers. They're if then conditions. You can have all this in your fifties, but you got to check the following boxes. By age 30, you actually have to solve the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world. By 40, you need to live in such a way that, that, that you're getting lots of passion, purpose, and flow, living passion, purpose, and flow. Or you have uh, another way of thinking about it is you've got match fit, which is a tight link between how I spend the bulk of my time and my values and my beliefs and my strengths and my passions, my purpose, right? That really matters. By 40, by 50, self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others really, really, really matters. You want to unlock those new levels of empathy and wisdom and all that stuff. You actually have to, forgiveness matters. Um, and for anybody who doesn't, the best tool for self-forgiveness is forgiveness of others is loving kindness meditation. Um, so there's your, there's your kick-ass tool. And then in our fifties and sixties to really gain access to this creative 
thinking, creative activities actually unlock all of the thinking styles that unlock all these skills that we're talking about in our 50s. So creativity in our 50s matters. And then beyond that, you always have to be constantly training down risk aversion because risk aversion increases over time. And if we get more risk, risk averse, we get more fearful. Fear blocks learning. It blocks flow. It blocks empathy, right? Make it makes us very selfish, blocks wisdom, um, blocks creativity. Uh, so uh, you have to train down risk aversion. And the last thing that's important is you have to train against physical fragility. Because what good is the superpowers of aging if our bodies fall apart, right? We talked about that earlier. So where do you start? Start with flow, but like these are these big milestones of adult development. You cannot thrive in your 50s and beyond if you don't. And the final thing I, I want to say, uh, and I think you would agree with me on this one, is if you're not exercising regularly, start early. It's it's a harder skill to onboard later on. And um, if you never stop exercising, um, so much the better, right? It's just got such a huge impact on health and longevity and stress and everything else you want. And, you know, we could spend the next three hours talking about that one. But those are the things that I think are sort of most important. Stephen, just one thing. Did you find that everything was is true for men as they are for women or there was some variation so there are there are some sex differences between for flow first of all um we've been sort of trying to look at them at the flow research collective for a while it's hard to tell um what is exact and and, and what isn't um so, but, um, and certain things are, are cultural, right? They're, 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 they, they, we want to say they're biological, but they're actually just cultural, um, and, 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 and right around sex roles. So there are differences. Obviously, um, there's men, also there's menopause. So there's a, there's a severe hormonal shift in women. There's male menopause and our hormones change, but like when, in women, that's, that's a stronger, that's a stronger shift. And, so there's stuff around that. I also want to say, so where does the mindset of old come from, right? What is that? When we're young, we are predominantly driven by the seeking system and the play system. These are, these are, there are seven basic primary emotions in all mammals. Seeking and play are two of them. And that's what, right? When we're, who we are in the world, how do we want to live? How do you want to make a living? Who's going to be your partner? All that shit, right? That seeking system mm -hmm. stuff. That's all underpinned by dopamine and norepinephrine. Um, when we have stuff we want to hold, get the job, we've got the partner, we have kids, which is the one that really does it. Um, but anytime we have stuff we want to hold on to, right, we switch our addictions. We're not seeking anymore. Now we're holding, we want to protect what we have. And that's about serotonin and oxytocin and endorphins. These are different chemicals than we're addicted to in the first half of our life. We're literally, we're switching addictions on which neurochemicals, pleasure-seeking neurochemicals we produce that we like the most. The minute you start, the minute you have children, right? And stronger in women than, than in men, but you really start to shift these things, right? And it happens during pregnancy. And that's where the mindset of old starts to set up. Right. It's not, it has nothing to do with 
like my age, it has to do with I have stuff that I want to protect, I want to conserve, right? This is another reason to become risk averse over time, right? You're trying to hold on to what you have and pass along to your children and all that stuff. These are not negative things, but peak performance aging demands all these systems, right? You want them all working together and balance. One thing also is, so testosterone, excuse me, uh, dopamine, declines over time. It's not dopamine synthesis that declines over time. It's that dopamine levels in the brain decline over time. This is like at the extreme levels, this is Parkinson's and some of those diseases, but it starts much earlier. And this is important. Dopamine synthesis in the brain doesn't change. You can make as much dopamine at any point in your life. It's that you're shutting down the seeking system and the play system and some of the big dopamine supplies we shut, we start turning, turning off in favor of this other thing. This is where that mindset of old comes from. And I think this is going to be a, a bigger issue in women than in men. Cause it's, it's very, it's a lot more tied into hormones that show up during pregnancy. Um, so there are other sex differences. Um, but like, that's the one that I think about the most and most people don't talk about at all. But right? they don't know where the mindset of old comes from. They don't realize that we're addicted to neurochem pleasure chemicals, you know, all that all this stuff. So that's the one that I like to talk about the most because it's I just find it the most surprising. Yeah, that came up for useful. me when that came up for me when you're talking about risk aversion. Anyways, unfortunately, we must close the show. It's been a really fascinating conversation, Stephen. Really a big fan of your books. Really great to have you on the show to share. The message with the community here in Australia, where can the audience go to learn more about you in this particular book? Uh, flowresearchcollective.com gets you more about my work with flow. Um, getmoreflow.com if you want to train with us. stephencotler.com if you want to know about me and my books. narcountry.com if you want to know about this particular book. And then apparently, I think I'm all over social media. I've heard this rumor. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time.